done something that uh, was so colossally stupid that when it was over, you just went, what was I thinking? Yeah, uh, today. Yeah, have you done that today? Um, I've done that many times this week. And uh, they're just things that make you go, hmm, we need to do a series sometime. Things that make you go, hmm. Some of y'all remember that song. Uh, that, I, I came across some analogies and some metaphors that, that were attempts at analogies and metaphors, I should say that, by high school students. And hopefully these high school students will not pursue a vocation of writing. Uh, let me share some of those with you. Here, here's one. The hailstones leapt from the pavement just like maggots when you fry them in hot grease. Huh? Because I often fry maggots in hot grease. Um, okay, next one. Long separated by cruel fate, the star-crossed lovers raced across the grassy field towards each other like two freight trains, one having left Cleveland at 6.36 p.m., <laughs> traveling at 55 miles per hour, the other at, from Topeka at 4.19 p.m. at speed. You... <laughs> That had to be high school students because you've done those story problems, right? And I'm like, I don't give a rip what time they leave. Um, I don't care. Here's the next one. John and Mary had never met. They were like two hummingbirds who had also never met. <laughs> okay, next one. He fell for her like his heart was a mob informant and she was the East River. That's a true romance right there. That's, a, that's the opening. That's not like Snoopy wrote that in the Peanuts comic strip. Um, next one. Uh, even in his last year's grandpappy had a mind like a steel trap, only one that had been left out so long it had rusted shut. <laughs> now, I can relate to that because my dad is, is 80, he'll be 86 in May, and grandpappy has a rusted shut steel trap of a mind. Um, last one. The plan was simple, like my brother-in-law Phil, but unlike Phil, this plan just might work. <laughs> now, I can, I can understand how these might appeal to a, you know, a high school mindset, but, but you know, a lot of them, I'm just shaking my head on that. Today, I want to ask you, have you ever been puzzled by God? Has, has God ever done something, or you, you perceived God was doing something, and it just left you scratching your head going... Why? Why in the world would you do that? Um, knowing God's ways are higher than my ways, that's what it says in Isaiah 55. It says God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than my ways and God's thoughts higher than my thoughts. I know that, but it still leaves me scratching my head sometimes saying, God, why would you do that? Well, today I'm going to give you some examples from Scripture of uh, things that seem to be puzzling. But I want to tell you why God does these things. So maybe when you leave today, you'll understand a little bit better from God's perspective as it applies to your circumstances. Um, let's think about the Lord's Prayer. It's really a model prayer. It's not what He told His disciples to recite all the time. How many of you had to recite the Lord's Prayer at any time during your life? Junior high football. Our, our coaches would make us get down on a knee right before the game, you know, and we would say, and if you know it, just say it with me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation 
but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Then we'd all jump up and go, kill them! You know, <laughs> we, were, we were moved by the words of that prayer. Didn't know what hallowed meant. Didn't know really what trespass meant. I learned that later through the police department. But I didn't know in junior high what that meant. Uh, but there's some puzzling stuff in that, in that, uh, in that prayer. And, and one of the most puzzling phrases is there towards the end. And uh, it's the next to last phrase. And it asks uh, God to protect us from Satan. If you look at Matthew 6.13, I think it's on your listening guides. It says, And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Now, the first thing I I look at that and I say, would God ever lead a believer into temptation? Those of you who've been in church a while, what what have you heard? Yes or no, would God lead you into temptation? No, 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 no. Because look at James 1.13. Let me show you exactly where. James 1.13, and remember... I think we have this one. And remember, no one who wants to do wrong should ever say, God is tempting me. And look, this leaves no doubt. God is never tempted to do wrong, and He never tempts anyone else either. If you say, God is tempting me, then you have a terrible misunderstanding of who God is, the nature of God. Then, then if that is true, though, why these words lead us not into temptation? Well, one of my favorite writers is Max Licato. Um, He used to be a pastor. He's no longer the pastor of church in San Antonio. He writes a lot of books, and I've lost count. I've read read eight or nine of his books, and he's got like 50, I don't know. But I've got a bunch of his books, and and one of them, this is what he says. This phrase, this lead us not into temptation, this phrase is best understood with a simple illustration. Imagine a father and son walking down an icy street. The father cautions the boy to be careful, but the boy is too excited to slow down. He hits the first patch of ice, up go the feet, and down plops the bottom. Dad comes along and helps him to his feet. The boy apologizes for disregarding the warning. And then, tightly holding his father's big hand, he asks, keep me from slippery spots. Don't let me fall again. Now, when you are walking down the pathway of life, you're going to have some slippery spots. You're going to have some treacherous spots that you come across. And um, God, what you pray is, God, help me through those spots. God, I know me. I don't need temptation. Help me hold tightly to your hand when I'm going through those treacherous spots because Satan wants to take me down. He knows me. And I, and I just want you to think about this. Think of the best father you know, the best father figure. It could be the imaginary figure on television. It could be a real-life person. The best father you know. If you were to call up the best father and say, Dad, I need some help. What would the best father do? Help. Think of the best father and the best help that best father would give you and God's help for you is better because He's a better dad. He's a better father. There is none better. And so you cry out, Oh, Heavenly Father, help me not to fall for this temptation again. And the Bible tells us that when we pray that prayer from a sincere heart... Our Heavenly Father, who is the perfect Father, is so willing to comply. Look at uh, Psalm 37, 23. It says, If you do what the Lord wants, He will make certain each step you take is sure. Now, this is a simple request from a child to the Father. 
the last slip-ups that this child has just gone through, the mess-ups have taught us that the walk is too dangerous to do alone. So we put our hand in God's and we ask, God, help me not to fall again. Does that make sense? Now, in the Bible, in most Bible translations, um, it has what we have at the, in, in your notes. This next phrase, they add two words to, uh, to the next phrase. And, and here's what it says. We pray not just keep me from evil, but keep me from the evil one. In the prayer you and I just stated a while ago, the way I memorized it, it was, and, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Most Bible translations add deliver us from the evil one. Who's that? It's not your mom or your dad or your spouse or your next door neighbor, although you might think so. It's Satan, the devil, the enemy of God. And Satan was an angel. Originally, he was created as an angel. He was one of the highest angels, but that wasn't high enough. He wanted to be above God. He wanted to be large and in charge, and it cost him, and he was cast out of heaven. And since he fell away from God, Satan has been trying to get every person possible to fall away from God as well, to follow his path, which is a path that leads to destruction. Now, um, even though the devil is smarter than us, he's more powerful than us, he wants to destroy us, Satan is still a created being and he's inferior to God. God is all-powerful. Satan is not all-powerful. He is more powerful than you and me, but he's not all-powerful. He is a limited being because he was created. Satan's purpose, he wants to wipe us out, but here's the cool thing. Because God is all-powerful, he can even use our enemy to accomplish God's purpose in our life. Now, that sounds contradictory, but I'm going to show you that in just a minute how this works. Now, another pastor that I read a lot and listen to is Erwin Lutzer. He's in Chicago. Here's what he said. The devil is just as much God's servant in his rebellion as he was in the days of his sweet obedience. And then Lutzer says, we can't quote Luther, Martin Luther, too often. The devil is God's devil. In other words, Satan is still accomplishing God's will. He's just doing it from the opposite side. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? How, how can God use his enemy to bring about God's purpose? Well, that's because Satan cannot attack a child of God without God's permission. But why would God ever allow Satan, the enemy, to attack me? It will, this will make no sense to someone who is not a believer in Christ. But for a believer in Christ, I want to show you three things that God uses Satan to accomplish in our lives. Here's the first one. Three ways God uses the devil to accomplish God's will. Number one is refine the believers. Now, we just said it. What was Satan's root problem? He wanted to be above God. It was pride. Does the human race, specifically, do you ever struggle with pride? Now, I don't. Mm -mm. Never, never. Sure, we all do. And this is one of the greatest tools that Satan uses is pride. Have, from what you've read in the Scripture, have, have Christians ever suffered from pride? Sure. The Jews, they weren't Christians. They were, they were God followers, but they weren't Christians. Christ hadn't come in the Old Testament. And so they got proud sometimes, and God allowed them to, to, <laughs> to suffer some defeats because of their pride. In the New Testament, Christians have, have, uh, have gotten um, uh, too big for their britches, is how my mom would have said it. Now, Paul comes to mind. Now, you've got to understand, let me tell you Paul's background real quick. Paul, his original name was Saul. He was trained by the highest level rabbi in Jerusalem at the time. His name was Gamaliel. 
So Paul was the number one student of the number one rabbi in the number one country in God's eyes in the world. He was the best student and, and he had reason to be proud, or so he thought. This little, this little uh, disturbance called the way, that's what Christians were called before Christians, it was the way, because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. So this little thing of religious zealots called the way springs up. Paul, being this trained Jewish scholar, thought that this was a, a threat to the Jewish way of life. So what he does is he begins to persecute Christians. Specifically, he, he has them imprisoned and thrown into jail. What he does is he goes to the high priest and he gets certificates of arrest. And he has them blank. So it'd be like going down to the courthouse and saying, Hey, judge, you know, I'm, I'm a peace officer. Um, I need certificates of arrest. And, and I'll fill in the blanks later. I don't, want, I don't want a justice system like that, but this is what Paul did. So he would get these certificates of arrest, and when he would find someone saying they followed Jesus, he'd fill in their name, he'd throw them in jail because he was protecting God. That's kind of funny to say someone's protecting God, and that God can protect himself. So Paul is this, this guy that, that is puffed up beyond belief, and he's protecting the ways of God. Then he's going to Damascus with these certificates of arrest in his hands looking for more of these awful Christians when something dramatic happens. He's walking along and all of a sudden a blinding light knocks him literally to his knees. And when I say blinding, I mean the dude was blind for three days. And he's scared to death and then he hears this voice. Saul, because he's, he's still Saul at this point. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's blind as a bat on the road. All of his companions hear the voice but they don't see anything. And he says, oh Lord, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Radically affected Paul's life. Paul, uh, he's, he's not Paul yet, he's about to be. Saul goes into the city for three days, he's blind. Then, then someone comes, a Christian comes, lays hands on him and prays for him. And when he does, it says, scales like, like the scales of a fish fall off of his eyes. And, and Saul now becomes Paul and God commissions him to go and tell the, the Gentiles, the Gentiles, anybody that's not a Jew, Go tell the Gentiles about the way. The one he's just been persecuting says, you're now going to be my apostle to people who've never heard of the way. Radically, radically changes Paul. So then he says, not only did I have this dramatic experience where I met the risen Savior Jesus Christ, he had some visions, and look at, at uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 4. He had heavenly visions so astounding that they cannot be told. So now, this guy that's chosen by God to go to the Gentiles, this guy who wrote half of the books of the New Testament, there's something that, that, that happens. He has reason to be proud because not only was he trained, now he's chosen by God, handpicked by God. He wrote half of the books of the New Testament. But God, who loves Paul and hates pride, allows something to happen to Paul. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7. But to keep me from getting puffed up, that's proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, to torment me and keep me from getting proud. Now, theologians have argued for 2,000 years about what that thorn was. Truth is, we don't know what the thorn was. We do know it was from God. The messenger was from God, but ultimate, I mean from Satan, but ultimately was under God's control. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my gracious favor is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. So we just sang 
your grace is enough? That's what God said. <laughs> Spoke to Paul and he said, my grace is enough for you. And then he says a remarkable thing. He says, my power works best in weak people. Weak, humble people are the complete opposite of proud people. So what God does is He allows things to happen to believers to remind us to be humble because His power works best in humble people. Satan and his followers are merely tools in the hands of God to strengthen his child. Now, one of the best-known examples is Job. You know about Job from the Old Testament, the patience of Job? Job <laughs> is described as having patience after he went through all of the trials. We're told, we know in the first few verses of, of Job that this is, this is really like a, an eternal bet between God and Satan. Satan comes to God and he says, um, God says, where have you been? He says, I've been roaming throughout the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan's like, yeah, the only reason Job follows you is because you're protecting him. Now, Satan questions Job's devotion. God doesn't. So God allows Satan to attack Job. Look at uh, Job 1.12. God gives permission, but He also sets the guidelines. Look at the guidelines of the attack. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So all of his possessions are wiped out immediately. Even his children are wiped out by Satan immediately. And Job passes the test. So Satan comes back to God and he says, Ah, oh, the only reason Job's fallen you is because you won't let me touch him physically. So once again, God gives the permission, but He also sets the parameters. Look at Job 2.6. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. Now, when you get through all of the questioning, and if you read the book of Job, dude, you'll think his friends are the most long-winded idiots you've ever met. Because we know the beginning of the story. We know that this is just a, 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 a test. They didn't know it. So you read through 40 chapters where his friends are just wearing him out and say, you've got to be a sinner. Just fall down and confess your sins before God, you idiot. And Job keeps saying, I'm innocent. God knows I'm innocent. They keep saying, you're a dork. Confess your sins. We all know you. God doesn't punish innocent people. Well, God allowed this to happen. And eventually you get through the 40 chapters and the end result was Job's health was restored and his faith was so strong it could never be shaken because it had been through the storm. Storms weren't going to shake Job. Job survived the most severe storm in history, personally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And then whatever, what Satan had intended for harm, God had intended for good. Satan has no power except that which God allows him to have. And then one last example of this is in the book of Revelation, you probably know that there were seven churches... God had seven letters written to the seven churches. Well, one of them was named Smyrna. And Jesus is writing to them and He says in Revelation 2.10, Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison, put you to the test. You will be persecuted for ten days. Remain faithful even when facing death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus warns them that they are going to face persecution, trouble. But He also tells them the length of the persecution. He tells them the purpose of the persecution. The purpose was to test them. And then he tells them the outcome of the persecution. He says, you will receive the crown of life. Your faith will be strengthened. You'll be better followers of God because you've gone through this trial. Now, Martin Luther described the devil as, as God's tool. And then he uses a gardening term. He says that he is a hoe used to care for the garden. And the hoe never cuts what the gardener intends to save and never saves what the gardener intends to weed. So no matter how hard Satan works, 
He's always doing God's purpose. So the very first reason God allows trials to come into your life, the, the, the reason God allows Satan to attack you is to refine the believers. But there's a second reason, and this one may hit close to home, is to awaken the slackers. None of you have ever slacked off at anything, have you? That's just me. I've slacked off of exercise. I slacked off the row game. A lot of us will slack spiritually. And when that happens, God allows us to suffer some consequences. In, in seminary, I had this great professor, and I took the book of Romans, and um, I'll never forget him standing up, and he said, the worst three words, four, I can't count, the worst four words in the New Testament are in the first chapter of Romans. God gave them up. You know what God gave them up to? It said they were so enraged in their lust and their passions to sin that God finally allowed them to suffer the consequences of their actions. Worst words are when God gives you up to what you desperately want because God knows it's going to destroy you if you keep going down that path. But God loves you enough that He'll take His hands back and He'll say, okay, if that's what you want to do with the life I've given you, I'm going to let you have that choice, but it will destroy you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul is writing the letter to this church at Corinth. He helped start this church. And so now he's, he's getting letters back and forth from them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he is pronouncing judgment on someone in the church committing adultery. First of all, Paul is appalled that the church is putting up with the blatant immorality. He says that the sin is so obvious that not only do people in the church know that adultery is being committed, people in all of the community know that adultery is being committed. And he says, and the worst thing of all is that you, the church, are putting up with it. You're permitting it to go unchallenged. And so, he says that the name of this person who's committing adultery is being drugged through the mud. The name of your church is being drugged through the mud. But the most important thing is the name of God is being drugged through the mud. And if you remember in the Old Testament, King David, he committed um, adultery with Bathsheba. Part of the reason that he was judged so harshly for his sin of adultery is because the name of God was being profaned to the other nations. All the other nations knew that David followed God and then he commits adultery. And all of the other nations knew it and so God judged him harshly, partly for the sin, but mainly because the name of Christ was being smeared. The name of God was being smeared. So look what Paul says. He says, even though he wasn't present, he'd already passed judgment. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Then you must cast this man out of the church and into Satan's hands so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved when the Lord returns. Now, interestingly enough, in the next letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, okay, this dude has suffered enough and he's repented, restore him. A lot of people don't mention that. The whole purpose of God turning you over to your sin is so that you can be restored. But you and I don't wake up enough to that. Another instance, Paul is, is writing to a young pastor named Timothy. And he's talking about two specific people who claim to be followers of Christ. Look what he says in 1 Timothy 1.20. Himenaeus and Alexander are two examples of this. I had to give them over to Satan to punish them until they could learn not to bring shame to the name of Christ. God will actually allow you to experience hell on earth in the hopes that it will awaken you to Jesus Christ. Just like the story of the prodigal son, a holy God makes a difficult decision to let the son run away. 
But the, the loving God is always looking for the slightest indication that that son is going to return. God wants you restored. But if you continue to sin, He will take His hands back. He will remove His hands of protection from you in the hopes that the consequences of your sin, you'll wake up someday miserable and empty and you'll say, there's got to be another way. There's that term again, the way. There is one way and His name is Jesus Christ. And He wants you to come back. The purpose of God's discipline is always restoration. God isn't interested in making His children miserable. He's interested in making them holy. And see, some believers are awakened by a tap on the shoulder. Some believers, it takes a big old honking two-by-four right between the eyes. And, and you can count on this. Anytime God needs a two-by-four, Satan gets the call. So our prayer ought to be, Oh, God, help me to be awakened by a tap on the shoulder. Not the two-by-four. The next thing, so you've got um, refine the believers, awaken the slackers, and then teach the church. I want you to think about Peter. Right before the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus is going to be crucified on the cross, he's just had the Last Supper with his disciples. He's prayed for them. And, and now he, he looks at, at Peter and he says, Oh, Peter, you know, you're going to fall away from me. Peter says, No, nah, even if all these other guys fall away from you, I will go with you to prison and to death. And look what Jesus says in Luke 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to have all of you to sift you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for, me, for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen and build up your brothers. Even though Satan had a plan to destroy Peter, he still had to get permission from God. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Well, Satan, the enemy, is the wolf. And the only way the wolf can get at the sheep is if the shepherd allows it. Why would he allow it? Well, to teach us. The shepherd will only grant permission if, in the long run, the pain in your life and my life is worth the gain of our character being shaped to look like Christ. That means that God allows His precious children to go through things so that they can be a testimony to His power and His grace. It's great to have testimonies in Scripture, and I read them all the time. But it's also great to have modern-day testimonies one of the best things about Celebrate Recovery is when people talk about their story of how God has restored them. Um, nothing will be added to or taken away from God's Word, but it is nice to hear that God still works, that He didn't just work 2,000 years ago, that He still is working today and He's changing lives. And the difficult times you are going through are preparing you to be a voice of encouragement to other believers. But it will also be a testimony to those who don't believe in Christ. Let me give you one quick example. You know, most of you have heard now that Jeremiah, our good friend, Miller, who used to greet in the parking lot, passed away two weeks ago. Um, several years ago, Jeremiah had a, had a car wreck and, and it, he lost an arm in that wreck. And uh, he went through some really, really tough times. I went to lunch with him one day and he just kind of opened up and shared everything that, that had happened and, and God was beginning to work in his life. And it was after that time that, that they were at court and... Uh, Barry Roberts, many of you know Barry is the, the pastor at Evangelistic Temple, and he'll tell you he's the one-armed pastor. And he had, he had a car wreck years ago, had his right arm severed. Jeremiah's left arm was severed. And I was talking to Barry this week because there's going to be a memorial service for Jeremiah here April 19th, and we want all of you to come. Um, and Barry's going to speak, and I'm going to speak. So Barry and I were talking. Barry and I are good friends. And I said, how did you meet Jeremiah? And he said, well, one day there was a lot of stuff going on in the court. Jerry's, uh, Jer uh, Barry is not only the pastor of the largest church in our town. 
He is uh, also a, a uh, licensed peace officer, a police officer. He's a constable. He carries a gun. He also um, was a karate guy. I mean, he's a big dude anyway. I don't want to jack with him, but I sure don't want to jack with a big dude who's, who's karate. Do you even know what his belt is? Do, do we know what? I don't know. Orange belt. I don't care. It's too big to mess with. So he, he saw Jeremiah, and it, this is what he said. He said, I looked over, I saw Jeremiah, and he said, obviously I've got something in common with that young man. So Barry walks over and begins to talk to him, and they talk a little bit, and Jeremiah said, man, I'd love to go to lunch with you. So they go to lunch. And Barry said, we were just talking, and, and Jeremiah said, how do you do all of the things you do with one arm? And Barry said, Jeremiah, you can do anything you want to do with one arm. So he began teaching him karate. And, and I can tell you, I could see a humongous difference in Jeremiah because he saw somebody who'd walked his path. None of the rest of you and I have walked his path, but Barry had and succeeded. So now God was using Barry in an amazing way in Jeremiah's life. And then in the midst of that, his life is cut short. That leaves me scratching my head, but I'll tell you this. Jeremiah had turned his life around and was pursuing God. You saw it. So the tough things you are going through are preparing you when someone else comes along that path. You can look at them and say, I have been where you are. When, when we went through a miscarriage, about 60 women contacted my wife. We didn't know that many people had suffered miscarriages. They helped us walk through that time because we didn't know about the emotions. God will take your greatest mistakes and your greatest pain and if you'll allow Him to, He will make that the, the contact point, the intersection of your life and someone else who is going through that, and you'll be able to look them in the eye and say, I know how you feel, and it will rock their world because they'll have someone to walk through it with them. Now, if you're still not convinced that God can turn sorrow into good, look at 2 Corinthians 1.4. He comes alongside us when we go through hard times, and before you know it, He brings us alongside someone else who is going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. No matter what you are facing, you can look at your circumstances and you can say these words from Genesis 50.20. You meant to hurt me, and you can say that to a person or to the devil. You meant to hurt me, but God turned your evil into good. Now, I want you to think about this. What is the greatest injustice that's ever been performed in human history? We celebrate it next week. We celebrate the greatest injustice that ever happened in history? Easter? Good Friday was the greatest injustice. The sinless Son of God, simply because people were jealous that, that He was getting too many followers, He was too popular simply because He claimed to be God's Son, simply because He performed miracles and thousands upon thousands of people followed Him, He was hung on a cross because the religious leaders couldn't take someone else being too popular. Greatest injustice ever. Back to Max Licato, he said it this way, a sinless Savior was co covered with sin. That's why He died. The author of life was placed in the cave of death. Greatest injustice ever recorded. And then came Sunday. Pain and grief turned to disbelief. Because you know, the, the, the two women who went out first, they couldn't believe the tomb was empty. They turned around, where have you taken him? And the angel said, you look for the living among the dead. What? What, what are you talking about? We came to embalm him. What? He, I, I don't understand. 
And then they actually meet Jesus. And He says, go back and tell my followers. I will meet them in the city. They go back and tell the followers, what the fuck? you women are crazy. You didn't see Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about. Jesus shows up. The greatest injustice turns to disbelief, turns to overwhelming joy. And the cowards who ran away, Peter being one of them, ran away on the night that Jesus was taken into custody, now become the greatest force in history to change the world. These guys were beaten. They were killed. All but one of them was martyred for their faith. What changed is they saw a risen Savior and they said, nothing else matters. I can face any circumstance because that risen Savior. If He can do that with Jesus Christ, turn the greatest injustice in history into triumph, do you think He might have enough power to handle what you're facing right now? Just maybe? Refine the believers, awaken the slackers, and teach the church. Now, if you have your listening guides there, I want you to circle the first letter of each of those phrases. What's that spell? R-A-T. What's that spell? Rat. And that shows you Satan's true nature. If God can use a rat to accomplish His purposes, do you think He can do the same in your life and mine? Can God use a rat in your life and mine? And let's pray that God will just, that we'll be awakened by a tap on the shoulder and not the two before. I've gone through the two before. And it's painful. But if that's what it takes, God loves you enough that He'll use the two before. I want you to take your registration cards, if you would. Fill that out on the front. 